This sermon, A Tragic Ending, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, May 25th, 2024, at Sovereign Grace Church. Would you stand with me? We're going to be looking this morning at Judges 8. Uh, We will be focusing on verses 4 through 28. 4 through 28. Tom, thank you for preaching Christ Uh, when we were gone. Verse 4, chapter 8, the story continues. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had answered. And when he... And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Ziba and Zamuna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbaha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Ziba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. 
And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were round the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Lord, this is your word. We come to it needy this morning, and by your grace we come to it humbly. Have your way in us. May your spirit be at work in every person here this morning. Lord, I, I, I come to the pulpit every Sunday with fear and trembling. But particularly so on this morning. Given this text, Lord, I, I feel my need. I feel my need beyond preaching. And so I pray that you would be merciful to me. That you would not only feel, uh, fill these listeners with your spirit to be able to hear and do your word, but that you would fill me with your spirit for the task of preaching that is now upon me. Do this for, for, for my good, for our good, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to listen to a story of a man who experienced his pastor coming and really leaving after 30 years of marriage out of the blue, leaving his wife for another woman. As he tried to process this, as he tried to work through the confusion and the pain, he said that, that an older friend spoke wise words to him that he will never forget. That's what he said. He said that by the time a man like the one I have referred to reaches midlife, he has learned to do a lot of things. He can lead services. He can pray publicly. He can preach. He can counsel people and so on. And because he can do all things, he appears to be a strong Christian. Furthermore, he keeps getting feedback from others that tell him he is a strong Christian. So he begins to think himself as one. However, if he has neglected the basic disciplines of daily meditation on the word, prayer, confession of sins, and accountability to others, he is in reality a very weak Christian. And when a big temptation hits him, as they often do, he can be gone in a moment. And everyone is shocked because they thought he was a strong Christian, when in reality he was not. What they are witnessing is the final outcome of a deterioration in the person's relationship with God that has been progressing in small steps over a long period of time. Then he says this, there is great wisdom there and a warning for all of us 
especially for those in leadership. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Sadly, this story is far too familiar. Perhaps someone came into your mind as you listened to that story. Christians, and, and in particular, leaders in the church, start well, but end badly. Now, let me begin by putting you at ease, okay? This sermon is not leading to an announcement <laughs> that a pastor will be stepping down at Sovereign Grace Church. You know, the thing about this kind of sermon, this kind of text, we would tend not to preach on these until we have to preach on these. Well, in the kindness of God, he's preparing us. Not that some, he's not preparing us that someone, hopefully, by the grace of God, not, not preparing us for someone, but he's preparing us on how to think about leadership and how we should respond to leaders in the church. I, I pray I pray that by the mercy and grace of God, Sovereign Grace Church will never have to go through a situation like the one we just read. Whether it's a pastor or the leader of a ministry or a deacon, whatever level of leadership, Lord, have mercy on us as a church. But this morning, we are about to witness the deterioration of a leader's relationship with God. Gideon finished, or Gideon started well, but finished badly. He went from courageously, and we've seen this over the last few weeks, he went from courageously obeying the voice and trusting in the promises of, of the Lord to pursuing his own agenda with no fear of the Lord. And as we walk through Gideon's story, we're going to find two warnings for our lives and ministry. Um, we're, we're, going to, we're going to walk through this story, we're going to let it speak, and then we will end on two warnings that we need to heed. That will be our application. But first, what happened to Gideon? Something has changed with Gideon. If you read that story, you realize, wow, that this is not the same Gideon. Well, that, you're correct. It's not the same Gideon. And our first clue is in the opening statement of verse 4. Notice what it says. And Gideon came to the Jordan, and he crossed over. He crossed over the Jordan. Now, crossing over a river, typically, usually, not a big deal. It's actually huge here. It's the first clue that, that what follows probably is not good. Uh, Gideon, as we read, was pursuing two Midianite kings. You guys talked, you guys uh, looked at the great battle that, that occurred last week. Gideon with his 300 men. Well, now Gideon is pursuing two Midianite kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, having just lost 120,000 men. 50, 15,000 men remaining, and they are fleeing for their lives. They are, if you will, making a run for the border. They are trying to get out of Israel 
territory and back into their own country. And when, as it says in verse 4, Gideon follows them across, well, he ultimately ends up leaving the land. That is a problem. Midian has retreated. Israel has defeated the Midianites. As the Lord commanded, Gideon killed the enemy and drove the survivors from the land. Mission accomplished. So crossing the Jordan and leaving the land actually goes beyond what Gideon was called to do by God. The second clue that something has changed with Gideon is how he treats his own people as he is heading for the border. Notice verse 5. So he said to the men of Succoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who followed me, for they are exhausted and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zulmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? Listen to his response. So Gideon said, Well, then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with thorns and with briars. And then he goes to the next border town, Penuel. And he spoke to them in the same way, help my men. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth. And he said to them, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Tower probably meaning their defense system. The watchtower. And so, there's something here for us to pay attention to. Now, Succoth and Penuel, they were Think of them as Israeli border towns. They're on the other side, on the east side of the Jordan. But think Nogales, maybe not Nogales. Maybe think Rio Rico, okay, if you're familiar uh, with, the, with, with uh, south of Tucson. And so, and so when, when Gideon goes to these men, when he goes into these towns and says, hey, help me by feeding my men, they're a bit suspect. They're a bit suspect because... They had doubts about what Gideon was doing. Gideon didn't have these two kings and the 15,000 men. He hadn't defeated them yet. He didn't have these kings in his hands. And there was no guarantee that Gideon would succeed as far as they were concerned. And if he didn't succeed, if he failed, guess what? They would be the first to pay as a border town as the Midianites cross back over the border into the promised land. Their, their villages would be the first to feel the wrath of the Midianites. So they're kind of playing both sides of the fence. We, we, we want the Midianites to be merciful to us if this doesn't go right. And so it's understandable why they would say, hold on, we're not sure we want to do that. Now, Gideon's leadership here, you'll notice it isn't helping them, right? He does, when they say no, he, he doesn't give them a word of assurance from the Lord. 
The Lord has said he will give the Midianites into my hands. He doesn't challenge them to to join him in trusting in their all-powerful God. Oh, remember the God you serve. He's with me. He's with my 300 men. He whittled my army down. He chose for me to go against the Midianites in this way. He doesn't encourage them to stand for the glory of the Lord. He threatens them. Again, look at verse 7. So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with the briars. He threatens them. He, when Gideon moves on to the next town in Penuel, the situation repeats itself. It's the same question. It's the same request. It's the same answer. And he does the same thing in verse 8. He tells them when they say no. In verse 9, he says, well, then when I come back through with these kings, with these kings in my hand, when I come back through your town as a victor, your defense system gone, I will destroy this tower. I will destroy this tower. So in essence, do you see what Gideon is doing here? Gideon says to God's people, these are fellow Israelites. He says, if you're not with me, I will whip you. If you're not going to join me, I will torture you. If I will break down your tower, I will leave you a sitting duck. He doesn't call them to repent. He doesn't encourage them to faith. He doesn't say, the Lord gave me a dream. He says, get on board with me or pay the price. And pay the price they did because in verses 13 through 17, guess what? Gideon goes back through Succoth and Penuel with the Midianite kings uh, with their ornaments. He is successful. The kings are dead and he does exactly what he threatened his own people he would do. And for the very first time, I believe, in Judges, we witness Israelite on Israelite violence. They have turned on each other. One of the themes in Judges that we haven't hit yet, but we will, is unity. One of the things that we see progressively in the book of Judges is that is that the unity of Israel as God's people begins to erode. Remember in the first couple chapters, what did we see? We we saw tribes joining together to fight the enemy. They were unified in their purpose. They shared the same vision. But now we begin to see that breaking apart. More, More on that later. But I want you to see um, what we don't see here. God. You notice that? Except for a brief, what is fairly presumptive and really passing mention of the Lord. there's, There's no sense in this story of God speaking. Of God directing Gideon. Of him leading Gideon. God seems to be absent in this, humanly 
speaking. In fact, there's an example of this in verse 10 and 10, in verse 12. In verse 10 through 12, we learn that Gideon captures Zeba and Zomuna. He defeats their army of 15,000 men with his 300. But notice what it says in verse 12. Notice what it says. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Who threw all the army into a panic? Story says Gideon did. Gideon. It doesn't say the Lord handed the Midianites into Gideon's hands. It says Gideon captured them. It it doesn't say God threw the entire, entire army into a panic. It says Gideon threw it into a panic. Now listen, we know on this side of the story, we know who the victory belongs to, right? The victory belongs to the Lord. Of course it does. We can do nothing apart from the Lord. All victories belong to the Lord. All fruit belongs to the Lord. Gideon was simply called to follow his voice, to believe in his promises, and to go, and God would hand the Midianites over to them. But the point of the change in language, if you're going, how come all of a sudden this is Gideon? Well, I I think that the answer is the point of the change in the language is to draw attention to the change in Gideon. Something's changed with Gideon. And the language of the text, the author's language, gives us clues. It points to that reality. (coughs) Think about it. In chapter 6, Gideon is fearful and hesitant. Remember that? He, He had to be assured and reassured by the Lord. Now, he's arrogant. You get with me, or I will thrash you. Now he's aggressive, violence toward his own people. God raised Gideon up to deliver and unify his people. And instead, we find Gideon torturing them. And we'll see, actually killing them. So what has happened to Gideon? Well, we finally find the answer in verse 18 through 21. Look what it says. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, where are the men you killed at Tabor? And they answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, pay attention, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. Now, in verse 20, he tells his son to kill the two kings. And there was a reason for that. For two kings to be killed like a young boy is humil- would have been humiliating. It would have been brought shame on their legacy and on their family. But he wouldn't do it. So when challenged by the two kings, no getting you do it. Get up and do it if you're that kind of man. And Gideon did. He did. He killed them. He killed 
the two kings. So, did you catch what's going on there? Ziba and Zalmunna killed Gideon's brothers. Not, not Israelites' brothers, his brothers, his blood brothers. At the, in the battle at Mount Tabor. And Gideon will not rest until he makes them pay for it. Gideon has a personal score to settle. That's the point. He has a personal score to settle. Gideon's agenda has changed. It's no longer about listening to the voice of God and drawing or, or, or and defeating and driving the enemy out of the land. No, that's not enough. Gideon is no longer being driven by the holy purposes of God building his kingdom. He is being driven by his passions. The fear of God and the glory of God are not driving him. Revenge is driving him. Vengeance is driving him. This is not God's agenda. It's Gideon's agenda. The moment Gideon crossed over the Jordan, he was more committed to personal vengeance than the Lord's holy cause. He had forgotten that God called him to something much greater than avenging his family. He had forgotten that he was called by God to deliver God's people and unify God's people and lead them into worship. To lead them into a place where they could experience his greatness and his glory, his provision and his power in their lives. And if you've forgotten, can I just remind you? Whatever you get up and do, whatever you will get up and do tomorrow, change the diapers, go moms. Make the long commute into the office. Go to school and learn. Watch your grandkids. It's all good stuff. God has called you, though, to his glory. God has called you to be his ambassador to those little grandkids, to that person in his office, in your office, to that student who sits next to you in the classroom. In other words, there's something so much greater that God has called you than the mundane things that you're going to do tomorrow. Don't forget that. Gideon has forgotten that. He has forgotten that God has called him to something much greater than vengeance and revenge. And of course, all this naturally leads to what happens next. Look at verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. The men of Israel, this is really amazing, the men of Israel respond by wanting to make Gideon their king. 
You saved us. You defeated the mighty armies with few men. You killed the kings. Rule over us. Be our king. You're worthy. Establish a dynasty. Did you notice that? You rule over us and your son and your, and your grandson. Establish a dynasty over us. We want a guy like Gideon ruling over us. We can follow this man. He's worthy. You know what? This, verse 22 is a reminder that, that the celebrity culture that is so thick in the church today did, did not start with social media. It didn't start with the invention of Twitter. It, it's, it, it's no new phenomenon. It, 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 it's pride. And so it, it has always been with us, and that, that is exactly what we see here. But I don't want you to miss the irony here. Don't miss the irony. Do you remember the whole point? Do you remember the whole point in chapter 7, verse 2? For God dwindling down Gideon's army. Lest the people boast. Lest they think we did this. Lest they think you did this. I'm going to make this so obvious that God and God alone accomplish this. And yet here we are. <laughs> here we are. God is nowhere to be found in the celebration. It's about Gideon. Instead, do you remember Deborah and Barak? Do you remember what they did after their great victory that the Lord gave them? We did a whole sermon on it. They wrote a song <laughs> that exalted the greatness of God. They sang praises to God. Our God is mighty. Our God is awesome. Our God is worthy. Not here. The song is, Gideon, you are awesome. You are mighty. They sing his praises instead of God's praises. Now, in verse 23, to give Gideon some credit here, he does give a good theological answer to the request. Look what he says in verse 23. He says, he says no, I won't be your king. The Lord will be your king. My son's not going to be your king. My grandkids aren't going to be your king. The Lord will be your king. That sounds pretty good, right? Well, it turns out that that is mere lip service because look at verse 24 with me. And Gideon, this is right after saying, no, I will not be your king. The Lord will be your king. Look what he does. Almost in the same breath. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. He's probably, he's on a roll. Okay, they want me to be the king. I might be able to get anything I, can't, I want out of these guys. He's on a roll. As my grandson would say, he's on fire. <laughs> so Gideon says, hey, let me tell you what. Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. Verse 25. And they answered, we will willingly give them. Gideon was right. And they spread a cloak and they, every man threw it in, the earrings of his spoil. Look at all this gold and the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold beside the, beside the, uh, besides the, crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian 
and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And then look what Gideon does. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. Ophrah, actually. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. If you keep reading into next week's text in verse 30, you, you learn that Gideon also established a, a harem of wives. That, that's a king move, by the way. <laughs> and he has a son who he named Abimelech. And next week we're going to look at him. And, and one commentator just, he titled his chapter on Abimelech, The Son from Hell. <laughs> so gear up for next week. <laughs> But you know what Abimelech, do you know why? Abimelech is mentioned here, not just as a lead-in to, to, to his chaos and sinfulness, but to remind us what's going on in Gideon's heart here. Do you know what Abimelech means? My father's a king. Oh, no, no, no. I know you want me. I won't be your king. But I want you to meet my son. I'm not a king. The Lord is king. Oh, by the way, have you met Abimelech? His name means my father's a king. I mean, come on, it's humorous, right? But but at the same time, it's like the audacity. (laughs) We know what's going on here. But much worse than that, after saying, I will not be your king in verse 24, Gideon takes their gold and he creates an ephod. Now, what's an ephod? And it wasn't an idol that they worshipped. It was a tool used to manipulate how they worshipped God. See, there's only one ephod. There's only one, and it was not in. It was not in Ophrah. It remained with the tabernacle because it was a tunic, a sleeveless tunic that was worn only by the high priest. So an ephod was holy, sacred. It was unique. It was central to Israel's worship and the high priest's office. It was part of... It was part of, uh, of the high priest mediation between God and his people. I, had to, I forget the name of them, but that these two little things in the pockets that apparently represented uh, uh, the role of mediating God's word to his people. And Gideon decides to make his own. Gideon might have said, no, I won't be your king, the Lord will. But he's acting like a king. And he's acting like a high priest. This is what Gideon has done. He has has authorized, unauthorized worship in an unauthorized place led by an unauthorized man. (laughs) That is not what God called Gideon to do. God called Gideon to lead his people to God in a life of worship not to create an alternative way to worship God. Again, in chapter 6 and 7, Gideon was continually directed by God. And as imperfect as he was, 
Yet, by the, in the mercy and the grace of God, Gideon followed the Lord's instructions. He obeyed his voice. He, he, he be- believed in his promises. But what we see is in his God-given success and the misguided praises of people, two things happened. Gideon abandoned God's agenda for his own, and he lost the fear of the Lord. He lost the fear of the Lord. And the result is that a great man of God who did great things for God and by the power of God, he started well but finished badly, taking God's people with him. Gideon's story ends with this. He created an ephod, an ephod, and it was a snare. Israel whored after it, and it was a snare to Gideon and his family. I think there's two warnings for us in this story. And the first one is this. We must stay close to Jesus. We must, we're, we're enough like Gideon already. With the, with the army of 300, you, you might, you might uh, preach that section and say, be like Gideon who trusted the Lord against all odds. Well, here you say, don't be like Gideon. He distanced himself from the Lord. He, 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 he took the Lord's place in a sense. And the only way to not be like Gideon is to stay close to Jesus. This warning is serious for us all, but especially for leaders in the church. And by leaders, I don't mean a, just simply just a pastor or a deacon or a community group leader or a ministry team leader. If you're teaching on a Sunday morning in the classroom over here, you're a leader in the church in that moment. You're leading those kids. You're teaching those kids about truth and Jesus Christ. So leadership isn't just about standing behind this pulpit. And as I thought about this week, I thought, boy, in in the mercies of God, we have a lot of good leaders in this church. We really do. So grateful for you. So grateful for God's work in you. So grateful for your willingness to sacrifice and lead. By God's grace, you know how to lead a community group. By God's grace, you know how to teach a Grace Kids class. By God's grace, you know how to lead your welcome team on a Sunday morning. By God's grace, I I know how to lead and preach. But the road from starting well (laughs) to finishing badly is subtle. Like we heard earlier, it's It's not one sudden giant leap away from Jesus. It's many tiny steps over time. Write this down. We become what we are becoming. It's true. We become what we are becoming. And and Gideon's story reminds us that between our sinful hearts... And the misguided praises of people, it's hard to finish well. 
It's hard to finish well. So in the strength of the Lord, by his mercies, only according to the power of the Spirit that's at work in us, we must stay close to Christ in our personal lives and in our ministries. His agenda through his church must always be our agenda. There are even good agendas, but we give ourselves to them with the wrong motivation. We give ourselves to them with the wrong heart. We give ourselves to them at the expense of something that it shouldn't be at the expense of. Leading in the church, leading in the church is about carrying out God's agenda. He has an agenda. He, he didn't save us, wind us up, say, go. Trust me, I'll come back for you one day. No, he's at work. He's intentional. He's at work in everything. That's the idea of the providence of God. He is working all things in all the details and in the properties of, of the things that he created toward his intended purposes. And that's our agenda, to carry out his mission. And that, that agenda and having the privilege to lead in the church toward that agenda, it, it begins with leading others toward Christ. See, a leader leading doesn't, leading doesn't, begin by leading others. A leader is first a follower. A follower of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> leading others to Christ begins with me following Christ. Before we lead, we must follow. We, we are called to build others not into ourselves, but into Christ. If you're a leader in the church, your call is to push people onward and upward more and more into the glories of Jesus Christ. Not, not convince people to do things the way you think they should be done. So here's the question for everybody, but particularly for those who are leading. And I, and I want us to take it seriously. Am I leading from a heart that is growing in knowing, loving, and boasting in Christ more and more? Or am I just getting things done? You know how to do things. That's why you're a leader. You can get things done. But that's not at the heart of leading. The heart of biblical leadership is to follow Christ hard and to serve others 
sacrificially toward in a way that leads them toward the same one that you are pursuing. I want to encourage you to ask that question of yourself and ask that question of those you have the privilege to lead. And see if the Lord exposes anything. See if the Lord gives you an opportunity to repent by his mercies and to grow and change and to become more and more that Christ-exalting, Christ-imitating leader that God has called you to and that God has for you. But there's another warning here. We need to stay close to Christ, especially if you're leading. But the second warning is we, we must avoid idolizing leaders. <laughs> it's a little more indirect but clearly that's what happens at the end of this text. God's people begin to idolize Gideon. Listen, leadership is God's idea. We need leaders. The church needs leaders. Most of us want to be led. Ephesians 4 makes it clear that leaders are a gift to the church. Paul uses strong verbs to describe how we are to submit to leaders in the church. Paul Paul calls us in his letters, Paul calls us to follow and submit and to emulate, even obey, to pray for and to honor our leaders. But he never says make them kings. We don't idolize them. We don't become dependent upon them. In the words of Paul, we follow them as they follow Christ. We emulate them to the degree that they emulate Christ. Which once again is is a big reminder for the leader (laughs) of what you're called to do. Is not to build, my call is not to build a bunch of Derek disciples. It's, It's to take the disciples of Jesus and say, I'm going there, come with me. See him? That's our goal. That's our king. Will you join me? Now, there are times, there are times, <laughs> leaders sin. There's nothing special about leaders. And when leaders sin, we need to treat them like we do others. We humbly correct and we encourage them to repentance. And there are times when, when a leader's sin is so egregious that we must remove them from leadership. That happens. And, and, and when that does happen, we shouldn't mindlessly look away. We, we, we should act according to God's word with humility and faith. But here's what we 
also shouldn't do. We, we can't allow our leaders' failures to shipwreck our faith. We can't allow our leaders' failures to shipwreck our faith or taint our perspective of God's precious church. How many people do you know that have left the church and perhaps their faith because they were disappointed by their leaders? Listen, if if you are struggling with that, if you came from another church and you're struggling with that, or if you are struggling with a leader in this church, I implore you, humbly go to a pastor and bring them into that. Bring them into that. Leaders will always disappoint. We can't idolize them. And Gideon's story reminds us that there is no earthly leader good enough. (laughs) Gideon was a great leader, but in the end, he failed. He disappointed. He led Israel into whoring after the ephod that he created. There's only one man who started and ended perfectly. There is only one deliverer who always satisfies and never disappoints. There is only one man whose life gives glory to God in every way at all times. There is only one man who has made God's agenda his agenda without fail. You know who he is. He is Jesus Christ. And when we see Gideon, we are called to look to Jesus. The whole purpose of the book of Judges is to move us forward to the faithfulness of God in the new covenant established by the blood of Jesus Christ that Hebrews so clearly puts before us. And speaking of Hebrews, if you go to Hebrews 11.32, do you know who you will find in the great hall of faith? Gideon which is the mercy of God. How in the world? It's the faithfulness of God. He is celebrated for his imperfect but great faith in God. But you know what happens after he's mentioned? Chapter 11, verse 32, he's mentioned with a few others. And then in verse 40, I love this. This is the way the hall of faith ends. All these great saints that went before us. Gideon's near the end. But in verse 40, it says, but. God had something better in mind for you. In other words, the moment we begin to look to Gideon, even like these The Israelites did here. God says, no, 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 don't look to Gideon. Don't look to Samson. Don't look to Abraham. Don't look to Moses. They had a place. They were great leaders, imperfect but great. By my mercy, they're, they're in this chapter. But there is someone better, and they're called to point you forward. You know how we know that? Because two verses later, in chapter 12, verse 2, we are called not to look to the hall of faith, but to look to Jesus. See, they point us forward to Jesus, the perfect one, 
The one who began perfectly and ended perfectly and is always perfect for all eternity. The one who shed his blood for you so that you can have the privilege of being part of his church, whether you're leading or not. That's the one that we look to. That's the one we don't look to human leaders. We, we celebrate our leaders. We honor our leaders. We pray for our leaders. We submit to our leaders. We follow our leaders as so long as they are following Christ. But we look to Jesus. We look beyond our leaders to the one who hung on the cross, who was raised from the dead, and who is now seated at the right hand of God, calling us on, calling us upward, calling us onward, encouraging us in the mission and the agenda that he has given us. If I can have the worship team come up, I want you to listen to these words that had an impact on me this week by a man named Ralph Davis. They encouraged me and they convicted me all at once. He's talking about Gideon. He's talking about the disappointment of idolizing leaders. He says there's a shadow of inconsistency of disappointment that frequently hangs over God's servants. Gideon was hardly a rare exception. This is not to excuse the sin of errors of the leaders of God's people, but let it temper our expectations. Let it cushion our despair and let it lift our gaze to the leader of God's elect who does not disappoint, in whom is no sin and against whom no charges can be brought. We will never find perfection of office except in our Lord Jesus Christ. Realizing this, listen, realizing this can save us from the cynicism that may come from disappointing servants of Christ. So church, leader, lead with zeal, passion, and excellence. By the grace of God, allow his agenda to be yours Christian, follow and submit and honor and imitate and pray for your God-given leaders. But above all, look to the one who never disappoints. Look to the one who is all your hope and all your stay. Look to the one who is the perfecter and author of your faith and will never fall short in that work. Look to the one who alone gives you eternal purpose, Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord.